0: Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 15, Naked and Not Ashamed. And in this final episode of Genesis chapter 2, we're going to take a close look at the phrase naked and not ashamed to describe the first man and the first woman in the garden. What we learn about God's view of marriage, what we learn about social interactions and relationships with one another, And how we grasp a few insights about what it means to live in perfect harmony with God, with the creation, with one another, and with ourselves. To gain one final glimpse at God's good world functioning exactly as it should. It'll be helpful for us as we pick up a few themes to compare it to God's relationship with his people throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The themes that Jesus picks up on also from Genesis 2 to describe his relationship with the church and what we learn about the way God has chosen to set things up in his good world so that those metaphors hold true. So I'm glad you're along for the ride once again. Thanks for tuning in. Here we go. To begin this episode, I'm simply going to reread um, most of the passage that I read in our last episode and then add the last few verses to it just so we kind of get the whole context and the whole picture of this man and woman together in the garden. And so in verse 18 of chapter 2 all the way to the end, this is what it says. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. and that is how the Genesis chapter 2 comes to a close. And so what I would like to do to begin is to, to just make a few observations about this. Um, and the first one is is the fact that there is some similarity, some likeness here between the man and the woman. And yet there is um, distinction, which I think ultimately is what makes marriage the perfect metaphor to describe God's relationship with his people and Jesus' relationship with the church. And um, I've been studying exactly what's going on in Genesis 2 for for some time, and there are lots of competing ideas about what is happening here. And, of course, one of the points of my podcast is to try to help clear away some of the mud. And um, I don't claim to be doing that perfectly, but I'm sharing on this podcast all that I have come to understand and come to know um, and so as we looked last time at the helper fit for him and trying to understand this um, helper and one that is fit, or as the NIV translates it, um, one that is suitable to um, to fit with Adam, there are a number of ways we can talk about this and look at this to to get a handle on what it actually means for a woman to be a, a suitable helper um, for the man. and. One of the things that I, I found as I was studying, I thought would be easiest just to read for you, and so I would like to read this, and I'll leave this in in, in the show notes if you would like to to pick up this book. But it's an author I've come across years ago named Preston Sprinkle, who um, is very very insightful, loves people, um, loves the church, is is really wrestling with passages like Genesis two, particularly in our culture today where. Marriage, as it has traditionally been understood within the Christian Church as being um, a, a lifelong monogamous relationship between a male and a female. Some of those things have in recent years come under attack and actually has been um, not not attack that might be a negative way to look at it, but those questioning whether that's a legitimate teaching of the Bible or not. And Preston has been someone who's been very, very helpful in this discussion. He wrote a book, a number of years ago and it is called people to be loved why homosexuality is not just an issue and one of the things that I have found being a pastor in the church is that when this discussion surfaces it surfaces with a lot of volatility people get very angry people get very defensive people um, lash out at one another for how they feel they've been treated or they lash out for what they think people are doing with the longstanding traditions of the church in the way that they present these themes. And so um, what Preston has done in a way that I've seen few people do is has balanced a genuine love for people of all kinds and has made friends with numerous people with whom his theological positions leads him to disagree with their lifestyle choices. And yet at the same time, they know that he genuinely loves them as human beings made in the image of God. And so the words that he writes are very powerful because you know his heart as he's writing them. But this is what he says in in his second chapter about this idea of suitable helper. The Hebrew word translated suitable by the NIV is kenegdo, and it is only used here in the Old Testament in verses 18, and then it's repeated in verse 20 as we looked at in our last episode. Kenegdo is somewhat difficult to translate into English since it is a compound word made up of "k," which means as or like, and neged, which means opposite, against, or in front of. Together, the word means something like as opposite him or like against him. It's a complex word that captures how it is that Eve can qualify as the perfect partner for Adam. So here's the relevant point. If it were simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, then the word k, like, would have been just fine. The verse would then read, I will make a helper like him. But to make the point that Adam needed not just another human, but a different sort of human, a female, God used the word kinegdo. This word potentially conveys both similarity, k, and dissimilarity, neged. Eve is a human and not an animal, which is why she is k like Adam. But she's also a female and not a male, which is why she is different than Adam or Neged, opposite him. And so w- with this part of the discussion, we come to this place where it talks about male and female, female being a suitable helper for the man and as i shared in the introduction this similarity and yet distinction is what makes marriage the perfect metaphor to describe god's relationship with his people and jesus's relationship with the church made in his image we are like god and yet in the prophets the lord repeatedly asks the people with what will you compare me i'm distinct from you I'm like you, and you are like me, and yet I am different from you. So different that there is nothing else in creation that you can look at precisely to give you the idea of what I am like. And, and of course, in those passages, particularly in Isaiah, the Lord was railing against his people for their making of images, for their making of idols and bowing down and worshiping them. And as we have already talked about, and I will continue to repeat, one of the major problems with idolatry is that the people were made in God's image. People were supposed to look at other people and see God reflected in those people, not in these static, stationary, lifeless, cold, metallic images. And so when the Lord asks constantly, What will you compare me with? He's talking about his distinction. And yet Genesis 1 affirms that we have been made in God's image, we have been made in his likeness, we are like him. And so for the Lord to recognize that it was not good that Adam should be alone, and then sends Adam on a search to interact with all of these animals, Adam discovers, you know what? These are biological creatures. They're living and they're breathing. They grow, they give birth, they reproduce. All of these things happen and yet they are not like me. They're not a helper suitable for me. They're not one that is fit for me. So then God creates someone who is like Adam, And yet is a suitable like against him, a a helper that is fit for him, someone that is distinct from Adam and yet like him. Marriage then between a man and a woman actually reflects this. And I think a a way to get at this a little bit more is to look into the New Testament and to, to, to hear what Jesus has to say about marriage and He is asked lots of questions in the Gospels, usually questions trying to trap him in his words, but in this particular passage found in Matthew chapter 19, in verse 3, it says this, Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, then why did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning... It was not so. Now, this is a passage that is not addressing marriage in terms of uh, homosexuality. Um, In fact, it isn't even talking about two people who wish to get married. But what's really, really interesting about this passage is that if you heard when I was reading, um, particularly in verse 5, Jesus quotes from Genesis 2.24, where he says, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The question Jesus is answering is whether it is okay for a man to divorce his wife, to get out of this relationship, to end the marriage for the reasons that he sees fit to leave the marriage. Jesus is answering that question He is wanting to uphold the unity and the union of a relationship called marriage that God himself has made possible, that God himself has joined together. That is what Jesus is attempting to do by using Genesis 2.24, the passage we just read. But that is not the first passage that Jesus brings into the discussion when the Pharisees ask him about marriage. They're not asking him who is allowed to get married and who isn't. They're asking him, is it lawful for a man to choose to divorce his wife for whatever reason he sees fit? So Jesus could have answered their question the way they were asking it in their context simply by quoting Genesis 2.24. But he doesn't do that. Jesus instead begins by talking about the creation of male and female in, in verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, as we read through Matthew chapter 19, it seems really strange that Jesus, in only talking to Pharisees about divorce, would feel the need to insert Genesis one twenty seven into the discussion. And if you remember Genesis one twenty seven, it simply says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so Jesus specifically mentions Genesis one twenty seven unsolicited by the Pharisees, that God made them male and female. It's an absolutely unnecessary detail added to a question that wasn't even about marriage. And yet it looks unnecessary to you and to me, but apparently to Jesus, it wasn't unnecessary. That Jesus knows that so often the Pharisees come to him with issues that are for them um, action-based only, Or issues about the Sabbath, maybe, where they were upset with Jesus for working on the Sabbath. What they weren't understanding was the underlying reasons that established the Sabbath, which Jesus continually comments on. And so when the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him questions about divorce, Jesus knows that the way to begin his answer is to talk to them about the nature of marriage. Not that anyone for any reason can choose to frivolously divorce their spouse, but rather we need to get into our minds very clearly what qualifies as a spouse. And so Jesus does that. And, and I have heard and read that there are some who hold that no, Jesus is simply quoting Genesis 1, to make sure that people understand that females are created in God's image just as much as males and we also live in a day and have gone through periods of our history where females have not been viewed with the same quality the same care and the same respect as males i hope to show you in genesis chapter 3 that that reality comes from the fall that reality is not rooted in genesis 1 and 2. Male and female are equal. They are both image bearers of God. And each one of them reflects different aspects of God. So that if you and I want the complete picture of who our God is, we will need to look at both male and female. But the trouble with assuming that the reason Jesus quotes Genesis 127 is to assert that females are made in God's image too. The trouble with that is that he doesn't quote that part of Genesis 127. If Jesus wanted to show that females are made in God's image too, he would have said, he, in the image of God, he created them, but he doesn't. He says he created them male and female. He leaves out the twice repeated f- um, word, image, which is two thirds of that verse. And I think what that shows us, it doesn't show us that female are not created in God's image. What it means is that Jesus' reason for quoting that in Genesis 1 is not just to level the playing field between male and female. It's to actually highlight the fact that there's distinction within marriage. And that's what makes it actually possible now verse 25 of genesis chapter 2 does in fact describe the state of the first couple in the first marriage there in the garden um but with the simple fact that in the way genesis 1 and 2 is told the simple fact that the first man and the first woman are the only two human beings in the creation means that in a very real sense they also stand for and represent um, the social relationships between human beings in general. And this is not a stretch, this is very clearly um, what we need to affirm, especially as we come to consider whether human beings continue to be made in the image of God as as um, Adam and Eve give birth to their sons and then their sons have children and, and it goes on down the line. And so when you look at the social relationships between human beings in general, This final statement, um, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, is a very short but very concise and very powerful way to describe that social interaction and that social relationship. And and the phrase is, you know, not ashamed. There's just this openness. Um, There's a total oneness and a vulnerability. Um, These are all seen as good things. Um, It's the state of things in a perfect creation. Uh, Vulnerability today sometimes comes across um, in a negative light. Uh, It brings with it a little bit of fear, um, a little bit of apprehension. If I am vulnerable with someone, I first must learn to trust them because my initial reaction is to not be willing to be vulnerable because to open yourself up and to become vulnerable with another person leaves you open to being hurt. Um, but we're not talking about that reality at this point. We're talking about the way the world was originally created. And so we have this idea of the man and his wife being naked, but not being ashamed. And so a, a world where there is no shame, no embarrassment, no thought of being exposed, and therefore no fear of being exposed, no desire To make yourself look good or to make yourself look better in the eyes of anyone else. No thoughts of needing to prove oneself. There's none of that. And and I, I don't know about you, but I'm always stunned when I just stop to think about that. What would a world like that be like? I mean, so much of my life, and and I, I think I might be a little different in this way, but I'm a, I'm a feeler by personality, but I'm also an introvert, and I spend a lot of my time battling over thoughts of insecurity. And so, again, I, I, I may be alone on that, but when I look at a world where you don't have to fear being criticized or fear being exposed or fear somebody finds out you're you're not as well put together as you try to present yourself as and and so on and so forth this is a world where there's there's nakedness there's vulnerability there's openness there's exposure and yet with all of those things there is no shame no embarrassment no desire to hide it's what the Bible will repeatedly refer to as shalom. It's a state of perfect peace and of perfect harmony. And it's so perfect that even the most basic levels of trying to correct what is wrong with the world, which you and I know as a world where we're trying to correct the fears of what we think we'll, others will see in us if they see the real me deep down inside. These are all kinds of areas that are not representing the perfect shalom, the perfect peace, the perfect harmony um, with God and with his creation. And and in fact, as we wrap up Genesis 1 and 2, this shalom, this peace of God, this state where all things are functioning precisely as they should, it it is multidimensional. And this is, again, what I was trying to point out, I think all the way back in, in episode 2, with looking at what the promise to Abraham was intended to resolve. And that was all that went wrong in the fall. And so the shalom of God is something that is also related to every component of creation. And so I would say that God's shalom is God's perfect peace and harmony with all of his own creation, the people in it, the creation and and the way man is is performing his his work all of these types of things god's rest itself is god's relationship with all of his creation but that also involves god with man that involves man with man and we've seen this here in our passage that we're looking at now we see man with the creation so he has a task he's been called to rule it and he's been called to work it. And to keep it, as those relationships function appropriately, there is shalom. As man treats other men and other women respectfully as image bearers of God who are his equals, there is shalom. And then there is finally man's relationship with himself. And so you see it in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, what's interesting about shame is that shame is directly related to your own nakedness. It's very seldom related to someone else's nakedness. Um, In fact, all through history, seeing someone else in a state of nakedness uh, produces further sin somewhat if it's outside of a context of marriage. And then in a context of marriage, it can be a beautiful thing. But so what you actually have, if you think about this, there's sort of a pattern in creation. We we might call it just a creational pattern. But as we're attempting to understand this idea of shalom, we have um, our relationship with creation. So we're made in God's image. So our relationship with God is, is first. And under that comes healthy relationship with creation. We're made in his image. We're made to rule over the birds of the... Uh, the air and the beasts of the field and over every living thing that creeps on the ground. So our relationship with the creation, our relationship with others. Here we are in Genesis 2, 18 through 23. Adam now has a suitable helper. There's community. There's communion. This is the first time you have social interaction and what takes place as a result. And then finally, you have relationship with oneself. You have an unashamed state at your own nakedness. So you've got this view of your relationship with the creation, this this big, big scene. You have your relationship with other people focused in a little smaller to these other image bearers of God and how you relate with them while you are caring for, ruling over, working and keeping this creation. And then you have your relationship with yourself. How you view yourself in your role with others as all of you work together to rule God's world well. It's a pattern. But in the fall, beginning in chapter 3, the ordering of these relationships is reversed. Relationship with oneself and a preoccupation with covering one's own nakedness now becomes man's primary concern, not his final concern. Relationships with others, personal shame now drives Adam to blame Eve and to see her as the cause of the problem. And then the relationship with creation, man is then cursed from the ground. You see, care for others and care for the creation is now affected by an over care for oneself. This is the world we know. This is why the word vulnerability carries with it such a negative baggage because we have fear and apprehension that someone would abuse certain knowledge about me or would exploit me for what they can get out of me and would see people as a means to an end and the end being their own selfish gain because they too are trying to cover up their own nakedness. So, sin and can rightly be defined as we will see soon is um, a turning in on oneself. Sin can and, and oftentimes is described as a reversal of creation, which is why the New Testament will oftentimes speak about salvation and about redemption in terms of a new creation it does this because sin is decreation sin is undoing the good that god put in the world when he walked it through as we looked at in genesis 1 the separating of the waters below from the waters above when we get to looking at issues of the flood how does the rain come how does the flood happen it says rain came from the bu- from above and the floodgates of the deep were opened in judgment as a result of human sin, the creation is being undone, it's being reversed. And the reason why I bring this to your attention is because it is practically impossible to read the entire length of the prof- prophets in the Old Testament, which is a huge portion of the Bible that is unknown to so many people because of its poetic language. And its poetry and its symbolisms and its themes and its images are oftentimes rooted right back here in Genesis one and in Genesis two, with issues of the creation screaming, the creation in upheaval as a result of this reversal of roles of man and woman in the garden with one another, with themselves, with the creation and then with God. And so this is how Genesis two concludes. This is how God's good world in the garden comes to an end and it does so in such a way that it has our ears tuned into concepts like what does it mean to rule well? How will image bearers of God treat one another? What will the relationships between male and female look like going forward? How will people handle the concept of defining good and defining evil? What will marriage look like In this place, will marriage prove to be an easily um, decided issue among God's people from the point of Genesis 3 all the way to the present? What issues of God's good world in the garden will get marred, will get torn apart, will will be attacked, will be questioned? These are the kinds of things that if you think about while you're reading the remainder of the Bible... You will see things in the same stories that you've read for 20 years that you have never seen before because the Bible is telling its own story on its own terms and as a result gives us new questions and then provides us with beautiful, beautiful answers. And again, I hope to continue to show you those as we go, but that's all for now. See you next time.